everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hello, Brian. Hello, Brandon. How are you? Oh, I am swell. Um, due to the magic of radio or whatever this is, this is the first recording we're making in the new year, although for those of you listening, it will be a little later than that. So I hope all of your um, your new resolutions are going well and you're all losing weight and being better people and whatever else you chose to do. Um, we have an announcement or two before we get into our topic today. Um, we are... As of this date, it should be this weekend, I'm um, going to both be at SCCM's uh, yearly con- conference, the, their congress, which is in San Francisco. It's probably a little late for any of you to attend if you're not already registered, um, but we are hopeful to see you there if you're planning on it. Um, Brian and I are both going to be. We are not attending as a couple um but we are both attending so we will not be at this in the same place at all times um but we'll be there uh and we are perhaps going to bump into you i think we both have a uh, a few events that you might see us at um i know on saturday on the 21st um the pa section is having their social uh so i might see you there i'll be there uh i am going to be um getting in inducted as an FCCM on Sunday. And uh, then on, uh, on Monday is um, the APP luncheon, which should be a good event. And uh, I'm going to be hosting a little round table there on um, social media stuff. Do you, you have some events too, Brian, right? I do. Yeah. So on Saturday, uh, I'm actually going to be speaking. So if you want to talk about FOMED and online learning and everything else, I'm going to be part of a session um, on Saturday called Developing Your Online Presence. And I'm going to be giving a little short talk on uh, how to structure actual learning from FOMED. So instead of just listening to podcasts for fun and playing on social media for fun, how do you actually structure some learning? Uh, so I'm going to be doing that. And then I will also be at the FCCM induction with Brandon. I was actually inducted uh, virtually into the college last year. Uh, unfortunately, they canceled the actual Congress in Puerto Rico, so I didn't get a, a physical ceremony. So I get to participate in this year's ceremony. So Brandon and I will actually be there together, uh, both in all our regalia uh, being inducted into the, uh, into the American College of Critical Care Medicine. Will it be a rapid sequence induction? I hope so. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, I I, I'm all for rapid sequence anything, really, uh, when it comes to stuff like that. But uh. <laughs> well, that would be fun. And really, um, if you guys are going to be there, um, drop us a note. We'd love to bump into you and chat. Um, I, it has been difficult to actually get people physically in one place for a number of years now. What with global pandemics and various other reasons, um, so we'd be really excited to to see some faces. All right. For our actual topic today, um, I wanted to close off what I, I guess has become a, a trilogy because all good things come in threes. We talked before about um, uh, medical writing, getting things published, and then we talked about giving talks, um, lectures and presentations and things. And then for the, the closing episode in um, what I'd like to call um, 
Things We Do for No Reason, which, you know, was an old series. And where was it? New England Journal or something did that about. Yeah, one, of the, one of the big myths. journals. It was great. It's yeah. a great series. But I think the running theme between, among all these topics is that most of these are things you don't need to do. Um, and yet we do them um, for sort of nebulous reasons. But the, the kind of closing category here is kind of leadership type stuff. Um, the, these are activities and, and positions you could hold uh, if you work in medicine, which are not really clinical, meaning they don't directly involve patient care, but have an influence on clinical work to varying degrees and um, might be something that you're interested in pursuing. Or, as we've said many times in other contexts, maybe not. <laughs> if what you want to do is just take care of patients, you don't need to do any of this stuff. But if you've wondered about it, we'll chat a little bit about some of the opportunities and, and why you might want to pursue them. So the, I think the, the two main categories of things you can get involved with here are uh, sort of close to home and more broad. Close to home would be mostly working with things within your hospital. Um, so your hospital probably has a number of committees you could get involved with if you're so inclined, um, and then various other kind of leadership positions. And then there are similar roles on a larger scale, which often means in professional societies of different kinds, the various governing bodies that try to provide some sort of, of guidance, often not necessarily regulatory, but um, sort of best practices and, and resources and things for the people who do the kind of work we do. So we, you know, we just talked about Brian and I are both fairly involved with uh, Society of Critical Care Medicine. Um, there are other big societies that are relevant to our work. Um, CHEST is a big one and, and so on. So there are roles within those groups you could be involved with. Um, and then you can kind of pick and choose. Um, Overlap certainly between those areas, but I think a lot of differences when you work locally versus more in a more distributed way. Yeah, I think so. The local option is certainly, I think, the less glamorous option, but probably the more likely to be able to make an immediate difference. Um, you know, to be honest, like when I first started getting involved with Society of Critical Care Medicine, it was kind of hard. Uh, I mean, you can sign up for all sorts of stuff and they'll put you on committees and groups and stuff. But the first couple of committees I was on, uh, they were tended to be large groups uh, of people with what you tend to find in lots of large organizations, right? Is that 10% of the people do 90% of the stuff. And so a lot of these groups were those 10%. Um, and you'd see their names on every committee. Um, and so it's sort of hard to break in because they were just sort of used to working together and they did all the stuff and you were just sort of along for the ride versus a local committee in your hospital where they really need you to do stuff. Um, but it's certainly less glamorous, but you can, you know, take that opportunity to address your specific needs, right? As if there's a problem you're encountering in your daily practice, you can get involved with the committee or the group that has some sort of influence over that. Yeah, I find that the people who are sitting on committees are doing it for one of a few reasons. Um, one is career building kind of stuff. They, they just want to say that they have done it. Um, another is because they really want to create change in the world. Like they, they think that they can add something and promote patient care or the profession or whatever else. And the third is 
to like fix things. Like they think there's, you know, problems they want to address them. Obviously, a lot of this is more relevant to you directly um, when you're working at the hospital level because most of the stuff that comes up may have some impact on you. Not all of it. I mean, some of it is more for other specialties or other settings, um, but some of it is. And then when you go on bigger levels, it's more about the profession as a whole and, and stuff like that. Um, like you said, it may or may not be hard to get involved in this stuff. The less glamorous the work, the easier. <laughs> so there is often, I think... Um, kind of a ladder here when you're first trying to break into some of this stuff uh you got to start at like the lamest least interesting possible committee because nobody else wants to do it and then you'll certainly come across a lot of people there who it's the career building thing and what maybe what they want to do is sit on a, another committee <laughs> but mm -hmm. they had to start here um and there's some reason to that you know mm -hmm. you you get you kind of educate yourself on how the, the process works um, how you know maybe the institution works if you're new there, um, or if you're you know, working in a society or something like that. Just how their governance works, um, and then when you once you put in some time, you, you've networked, you've met you know people, and you've kind of built some of those connections. Um, then maybe the next committee you're on is a little more interesting. Some of these too can be a good opportunity for learning in general. So when I was a nurse at the bedside. Um, someone asked me if I was interested in being involved with the nursing research committee, nursing research council at the hospital. And I really didn't know much about research at the time, but I knew I was going to grad school and I knew I was interested in it. And so I sat on that committee and it was a rather large committee of, you know, a handful of bedside nurses and then some nurse scientists, right? Some people who their whole job was to work in research in the hospital, some professors from the College of Nursing, a lot, a lot of people with PhDs. Um, and it was a good opportunity for me to learn from these PhDs and these uh, people who did this for a living, like how this process works. Um, it's a good way to make some connections too. Uh, a lot of those people tended to be involved in national societies, maybe not ones I was interested in because it was a you know sort of hospital-wide committee. So it wasn't all critical care people. Um, but you know, if you've got somebody who's the president of some national society, even if it's not a society you care about, you know, having that connection can be really helpful. Um, they can tell you how these things work in general, and they often know people that are in your profession, et cetera. So. Right. So the way that um, these committees are organized it can vary, but um, – when they're a little bit more informal, which is often true at the hospital level, there'll usually be some kind of a chair, um, possibly a, a vice chair who helps out, and they'll kind of run meetings and help create the agenda. Um, if there's a little more structured, and this is often the case for um, larger groups, there'll usually be more positions. You'll often find a, um, a secretary or secretary slash treasurer, you know, one whose job is to often t take minutes for the events and, and kind of just keep organized with other, you know, uh, paperwork and stuff like that. And a treasurer kind of manages money. Not that there's necessarily much money, but there may be some, especially for in societies and stuff like that. Um, and then if there's names for everyone else, it's often things like um, maybe a member at large, which doesn't mean you're obese. It just means you're you're not representing any specific interest. It, it's just kind of the the membership overall of the group. Um, 
And then, you know, you may end up on these things by uh, an election. It may be sort of democratic. So if you're representing um, like an organization, they may vote you in. Or maybe by appointment, you may be nominated by somebody else. And again, for the, the, the least interesting things, it may be kind of anyone want to be a part of this, especially if there's not necessarily a specific size or anything. Often little ad hoc groups, like someone just puts together a committee to address some issue, like a little working group or something. It's kind of whoever they can corral into doing it. Um, you may, and this is, I think, also something worth realizing, um, the timeline for getting involved with these sorts of things may be longer than you realize. So again, especially in um, larger, more structured settings like national organizations, you may find that if you want to get involved with a committee, and a specific one or in general, you may express interest in January. Um, they may make some appointments in October of that year, and then you start in the committee next January. Um, that's the kind of timeline you're talking about here. So, you know, understand that going in. But also, as you're sort of continuing to be involved in things, you know, maybe you've you served on the lame committee and now you want to get on something more interesting. Um, you need to like plan ahead. <laughs> you know, don't don't forget that. Oh, wow, yeah, we got to express interest in that now, so that like next year we can make some changes because like I'm finishing with this committee or something like that. Th these, these, these timelines are not li like a month kind of turnaround for a lot of things. Yeah. And you know, certain groups are going to be just sort of open, right? You can just join at any time and be involved. Uh, and they tend to be the ones that are um, a little less popular or a little less um, demanding, I guess, right? There's not necessarily big structured projects that, well, I have to have five people and I need them to do this, this, and this. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe not ones that everybody is super excited about joining because, well, then we have to kind of limit it. Um, <clears throat> and in that case, you usually have some officers, I guess is the best way to say it, uh, who are appointed for terms. So, for example, I'm currently chair of the membership committee, membership and awards committee of the nursing section of SCCM. Uh, and that's a position that I hold for a year. So at Congress coming up this weekend uh, in San Francisco, I will officially turn that over uh, to the new chair. Uh, but I'm still going to be involved in that committee. I'm, I'm also a member at large on the steering committee, which is the bigger committee uh, for the section. Um, and so I'll sort of be a liaison between the steering committee and the membership committee. Um, but the membership committee is pretty much open, right? If you are interested, uh, if you joined SCCM today and were like, how do I get involved? Um, somebody may say, would you like to be on the membership committee? Um, here, here's who to contact. And they'll meet periodically and discuss things. So there are committees out there like that that are a good kind of easy way to get your foot in the door with things. Right. And you will also see sometimes the, the kind of leadership and officer positions in some groups has a, um, a process to it. For instance, if there's a, a president, a vice president, or a chair, vice chair, and like a secretary let's say it could be that you you don't vote for each one maybe you people elect in or appoint just the the bottom rung let's say that's a secretary and then maybe their term is a year or two and then after that they become like the vice chair mm -hmm. and then that person 
after their term becomes the the chair, the president. Um, and then for the the leadership position, let's say it's a president, there's often a not just a president, but a a past president, meaning the most recent one, and then the president elect, meaning the coming person. So that there's kind of um, you know a, the voice of the person who was most recently in charge. There's continuity, and then preparing the next person for it as well. Um, so you'll see this kind of grab bag of, of positions. And again, uh, on the point of timelines, I mean, if you had a system like that, you could see how if that was your goal, it, you know, that could be like a five-year process. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And a lot of those bigger positions on organizations or, or boards of uh, organizations and stuff, it's like an election, like you said. So you can just put yourself forward. You can put your name forward. Um, understanding that the bigger the organization, the more you're going to have to sort of be known uh, to get a position because you can put your name forward and put up your bio, but they'll send out a slate of um, ballots to all the members and say, you know, we're electing a new slate of uh, officers. And this is someone who's put their name forward for secretary. And it's probably going to be three or four people most of whom are going to be pretty well known to the membership because they're actively involved in lots of things. And, you know, you'll put up your little bio and why you want to be that person. But honestly, I think most of the people base it on, they go, Oh, Hey, I know that guy's name. I've seen him on such and such, or, Oh, she's the one that was, that just gave that great talk uh, at the meeting last year or whatever. And so a lot of it just is name recognition. Right. So that's that climbing the ladder kind of thing. The more you're around both in time and um, involvement and how involved you are in that involvement, right? So if you've served on eight committees, but you've been one of those bumps on a log who never did anything and no one remembers you were there, that doesn't you know mean as much as if you've really been kind of a, uh, a force for for change, like we mentioned with publication and presentations, there is a lot of benefit to smaller venues beyond that it's just easy easier right it's It's certainly going to be much easier for you to become the president of the Kentucky State uh, Nurse Practitioner Association than it is to become the president of SCCM or chest. But not only that, like we mentioned with journals and, and presentations and stuff, it's easier to find an, a niche audience that really is passionate about what you're passionate about, right? So find an organization that is doing what you are interested in, get involved in that organization, and it's likely that you're going to have an easier time sort of advancing through because it's smaller, but it's also probably really more what you want. Yeah, there's, you know, in an ideal world, the positions that you find would be both of a great deal of influence um, and of have a sort of a lot of glamour or recognition um, and be interesting. But often it's not all those things. I think there's often an inverse relationship between how like directly relevant the work you're doing is to actual people and how recognized it is. A lot of the most necessary stuff is completely thankless. You know, you just you're on some little committee at your hospital that just stuff that has to get done. Nobody knows that you do it. Nobody would care if you did. If you put it on your resume, nobody <laughs> cares much. And you, you do see people, and really at all levels, where their involvement in these groups really does seem to be service. I think they just they just think it's important to do and to give back. Sometimes it's people who have like already climbed the ladder. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you see like the 
former president of a society and they're on some little committee. Like, whatever, they want to be involved and do something. It's not like helping their career or whatever. Um, or, you know, the, the surgeon of 30 years who's, you know, on your hospital's whatever, P&T committee or something. I mean, they're probably not trying to change the world, but someone's got to do it. And especially, you know, smaller hospitals, really necessary governance kind of stuff. Um, you know, it just kind of cycles through. You know, it, everyone's got to kind of do it. And Dr. Smith hasn't, you know, been the, the president of the medical staff yet. Come on, buddy. <laughs> We've all done it. <laughs> it's just got to get done. If you want to get involved in this kind of stuff, um, figure out what your, your expectations are and what you want to achieve. It's great if you, are, if you are passionate and you want to get involved with something because you want to, to improve it and make changes. Um, but realize, this is one of the, the deeper realizations I've made in my, my old, old age. Um, in reality, the, the main role of a lot of leadership and governance kind of groups like this, this probably applies to politics in general, but their role is not so much to make change, but to prevent it. And I, I don't mean to sound too cynical, but uh, a group like this, the, you know, it's kind of like, I, I view certain roles in medicine, um, blood banking is like this, or the pharmacy. Um, a lot of what they do is about safety. They're trying to prevent bad things and mistakes from happening. Um, so what that means is it's often the role of someone else to make change, to have an idea, to suggest something that's a little different. And then their job is to make sure it, it's, it's safe to do that. It's not going to kill someone. It's not going to make the system break. And a lot of you know committees and leadership groups, that's kind of what's going on. Yes, they may sometimes change things, but um, most of what they do is routine, like wheel turning, reviewing, you know, rubber stamping, approving, making sure that something that maybe somebody else brought to them, that, you know, a proposal, a new policy, a guideline, they're making sure it is reasonable and safe and is something that the world can kind of, you know, start accepting and approving um, without, you know, killing somebody. And if you start viewing it that way, then you will be li a little less disappointed when you realize that after your two-year term on this committee or whatever, you feel like you didn't do anything. <laughs> and if you, you came in hoping to do a number of things, you achieved like half of one of those things. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that um, you know, institutions change slowly. Um, and I think I was just talking about this the other day with someone. Um, I think one of the biggest things I see frustration in people is they come into an organization with grand ideas uh, about how things should be different and get frustrated when they don't change right away. Um, but when you step back and take the long view, you can see you know, I mean, I've been at this same hospital now for, I mean, 10 years currently in a stretch, and I've been involved with them off and on for almost 20 years. And I can look back and see huge differences over that time. But in the, in the moment, it feels like change is never happening. It's the, 
things are so slow and people will come in sometimes from outside and go, why do you do it this way? It's, this is dumb. We should do it this way. And, you know, I might hear them say that and go, man, that's a great idea. Um, but then they get frustrated that they brought it up and it didn't happen and it's not instantly better. Um, you know, big organizations change very slowly. So you've got to, if you're going to be involved with stuff like this, you've got to have that kind of patience for long glacial change. Yeah. And there's a, there's a balance here, you know, a a major part of the reason why things happen slowly probably is because you're passionate about it and nobody else is. And everyone else has kind of habituated to Mm. how slowly things happen slash not changing at all, so they're not trying very hard. I'm not necessarily saying that's good. I mean, you you should try to make the right things happen. I'm just saying, like, you know, if if you it's like opening a, a really heavy door. If you like hit it at full sprint, you just you're gonna bounce off and hurt yourself. You need to kind of build up some momentum, um, which is can be hard to distinguish from not trying at all, <laughs> but is different. It's it's sort of about persistence, I guess. I mean, like you said, there's a reason why things are the way they are. It's not necessarily because it's the best way, but it's usually because of a variety of factors and obstacles that are there, even if you wish they weren't. Yeah. Well, and you got to remember too, when you're talking about changing anything, there's a reason you're motivated, right? You came to a system from from another system and you see that, hey, the way we did it there before was really great. And the way you're doing this here is not so great. Um, or you went to a conference and heard a talk and you were like just really blown away. But you have to remember that the majority of people in your system don't have that experience, right? They have worked in your system. They don't see what's wrong with the current way. Um, because for the most part, we rarely have issues that we encounter where everybody just agrees, this is a horrible system, right? Because it would have been changed by now. Uh, it's mostly that people are like, it's fine. It's a fine system. Um, and you might appreciate how it could be better because you've seen a different way or you've heard that talk or whatever. Uh, but not everybody shares that. And that's, I mean, you will see, cause we all work with, you know, various leaders and managers in our own clinical work. I mean, you will recognize that there is a, a fine line and certainly a, a skill and an art to, um, balancing, you know, creating change for the better with with respecting the kind of day-to-day work of people because you know the things people are doing they are doing for a reason in many cases it's because it's easier they're used to it certainly but they're they're still not going to want to change everything because of your your whims you know <laughs> um so i mean you want to support the work people are doing as best as possible while also you know trying to make things better and not just never changing at all yeah this is something i encounter a lot when i work with um doctoral students, so DNP, Doctor of Nursing Practice students at Georgetown, and uh, our fellows at UK, our APP fellows have fellowship projects, but the DNP students have projects, and I had one when I did my DNP, and it's really easy to get discouraged because this is your project. It's You're passionate about it, um, and sometimes it's something that everyone sees and goes, Hey, that's really cool. And it's a pretty easy change, right? It's not going to make me do a lot. And so they'll get passionate about it too. But sometimes it's a much bigger, harder thing. And so it's easy to get discouraged. So I usually tell students, you know, you need to look at incremental change. 
um, ways that you can sort of ease people into things. Um, and yeah, the problem is, I mean, it's like anything else, right? The, it, you, you plant a tree uh, knowing that you're not going to be the one that enjoys the results, right? I plant a sapling in my yard. I'm not going to live there when it's a huge tree that shades the whole yard. Um, and a lot of that is true with any sort of institutional change, right? What I may want to happen may take many years to get there. I got to start small. So outside of committee work, um, the main category of, quote, leadership things you might be doing is, I think a person who is primarily doing clinical work, which is how most of us start, and then potentially transitions into a position that is only partly or not at all clinical and is instead something else. Um, for us, I mean, I'm a, I'm a critical care PA, you're a critical care nurse practitioner. I think the most common ways for this to go would be a lot of, of departments, they, they build their like APP team um, with a pretty narrow amount of leadership. Often it's the clinical staff and then maybe one of them is appointed as like a, a lead, they'll often call it. Um, and they're, they're kind of a semi-managerial position, although usually they still work clinically as well. Um, and, you know, usually that means they make the schedules. Um, they kind of interface with a higher level leadership, like your directors of your ICUs or the department or the division or whatever. Um, they're probably involved to some extent with like hiring and firing and reviews and stuff like that. And then hopefully, generally, they are given some amount of, of time to do all this, meaning it's not like they're working 40 hours a week clinically and then just expected to do all the rest of this on their own time. So that may be the, the most natural career progression for somebody who is wanting to get into some kind of a leadership role um, slash transition partly out of being purely clinical. Is that how things work at your shop? Yeah, for the most part. Our division has a APP supervisor, I think is her title, um, who, yeah, is sort of the manager of all the APPs. And she still works clinically, really, honestly, probably just as much as the rest of us do. Um, I think she gets a little bit of protected time for administrative stuff. But yeah, like you said, a lot of those extra tasks, um, scheduling and hiring and firing and performance reviews and stuff like that, uh, and I think positions like this are really, I, I mean, I, I don't want to be discouraging to anybody who's interested in this. They're fairly thankless jobs, I think, yeah, right? They, exactly they come with saying. a lot of extra work, uh, a little extra authority, and a little extra money, maybe. Um, and I, I don't know about the PA world specifically, but this is true of nursing in general. I've always thought... Um, that people who leave the bedside to become nurse managers, um, I don't know what they're thinking. Uh, it's a lot more work. <laughs> it's a it's, it's, sometimes it's a pay cut um, because rather than pay, being paid hourly and making shift diff and all that stuff, they're getting a salary but expected to work as many hours. I don't know. I, I feel like the, the folks who do this fall into two categories. One, people who are just genuinely interested in kind of taking on a little bit of more leadership responsibility. Um, slash, I guess you could include in this group people who are like, I'm interested in this sort of thing, and I kind of need some, I need to step back from the clinical role a little yeah. bit. You just, you can't do it yeah. as much. Um, hours and then, or whatever. 
And then the second group are people who are like, I'm on a mission. Uh, I'm going to be president of my organization, right? CEO of my hospital, right. chief whatever officer. And you kind of have to, it, like with the committees, right? You have to start small. So you're the APP manager for the ICU team. Uh, and then a position opens up to be like the director of APP education or the, you know, maybe there's, maybe your hospital has a chief APP officer or something like that. And you could sort of move your way up into the C-suite, right? Of all the chief whatever officers. Right. That would generally be the next step for you. Um, but like you said, it's, it's kind of a, it's like a middle manager syndrome. I mean, you, mm -hmm. you're, you're probably going to be given a lot more work and responsibility, um, but not a lot of ability to actually change anything. I mean, you're going you're gonna to hear shit from the people that you're helping manage as well as from high above. You probably can't do much to satisfy either group. Um, I mean, even just the, the simple task of doing scheduling, which is one of the simplest ones, sounds like the absolute worst thing in the world to me. Um, it, it, I, I think the third group of people who does this is people who have been just around long enough. Like, you know, they've been working there for 15 years or something. And they just they just kind of like it was it just had to happen like they're by far the most senior person the last like person in charge left and the management was like look can you just like fill in and you're like oh, i don't want to and then it just kind of you know there was nobody else and then it just kind of started helping out and then it it was inevitable yeah i've been fortunate um to work for two really great um, APP supervisors uh, since I've been a nurse practitioner. And as a nurse, I worked for two or three, I think, think of who were really fantastic nurse managers and a handful of really awful ones too. Um, you know, and I, like I said, I, I don't know, I'm glad for the, the good ones. Um, but it, it's, it has never seemed like a job that I'm interested in. Uh, maybe that'll change at some point in my career. But yeah, like you said, it's just a really, you know, you're, you're going to get crap from the people below you for, because you can't make everybody happy. Uh, and at the same time, crap from people above you because you can't make everybody happy. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm God bless them. I'm, <laughs> I'm just really glad it's not me. Yeah. It's not one of those change the world positions. It's one of those just has to be done positions. Um, and probably the, you know, less is more like people are not going to want to hear from you. Like, fooling around and what they do. They just want, they want to get their schedule. It makes them happy and, you know, make the, the trains run on time. The other way you can go, I think, and th there are varying opportunities for this is to um, start doing something that is a more educational role. And I think this depends a lot on your institution your department and, and what's available. Ultimately, education doesn't really make money for the most part. Um, so to what extent there is a role carved out for this sort of thing um, it, it may vary. I mean, the chance that you can one day hang up your, your clogs as a, a bedside provider and start, you know, doing 40 hours a week, just like, um, I don't know, like teaching or training or something outside like the classroom setting, but just in a clinical setting is um, maybe slimmer. But there may be something you can do. I know that um, a lot of ICUs have like a nurse educator, for instance, who does do stuff like this, but it's a little less common in our world, I think. Yeah, I think, I mean, <clears throat> there certainly are. I've, I've known of positions in organizations that are, um, like you said, sort of 
oversee educational and, and career development opportunities, maybe we'll call it, um, for like a, but usually it's a, like a system wide, right? There's one person who takes care of all the APPs in the entire enterprise. Um, you need you know, a big uh, system. Yeah. Yeah. Hospital, so, they don't right. So like our place that we have, I don't know, I think, I mean, do we have like 13 or so APPs in our division right now? Um, <clears throat> you know, we don't have anybody that does just that. Uh, I do education stuff for our fellows, but that's a essentially a part-time, you know, very small part of my work. Um, but but our system has people that do that because they oversee, you know, 800 to 1,000 APPs and provide stuff for that. So, yeah, you got to get into a big system for things like that. Right. And, you know, I, when you're looking at these topics in general, um, I think a, a useful way to, to look at it is to ask, if this is part of your job, are you getting paid for it? And what I mean by that is not like you you do a project and someone hands you a bag of gold. But usually what it means is, do you have some of your of your time which is protected for doing this? In other words, if you are full-time, which generally means in the ballpark of a 40-hour-a-week employee, uh, often for our kind of position, you're, you're salaried. Um, so it's just that is the amount that you're scheduled. Are you scheduled 40 hours a week to work clinically, or are you given... 80% to work clinically and 20% of that time, whatever, I mean, how many hours that is, to do this other thing. So if, you know, you're the, the team lead to do that stuff, scheduling and whatever else. If you are, if you don't have time protected to do whatever you are doing, I would suggest to you that it is not part of your job, it is a hobby. <laughs> and it is, that, that is um, sort of a message that's being sent by your employer about what they value. Now, you may want to do some of these things, and you may do them because you enjoy it or you think it's valuable, but I think you should draw that line in your mind because if for no other reason than to realize that if one day you don't want to do any of those things, you don't have to <laughs> because it's not part of your job. Yeah, I think that's a good point, right? And like you said, it doesn't have to necessarily be in terms of cash money, right? Like uh, I have, I'm an APP in this group and they've asked me to sort of take on this whatever role uh, and it comes with a pay raise, right? It may come in the form of time, like you said. Um, you know, well, I mentioned, so I do um, clinical simulation training and point of care ultrasound training for our fellowship. Um, I get a couple of days a month of professional development leave, right? Where I work, I work a few less days a month clinically. Um, and instead I go and teach in the sim lab or I go and um, do point of care ultrasound training or things like that. Right. Um, and that's, that's my department's way of kind of compensating me for that time. Cause otherwise it is just like extra work that you're doing and it's a hobby. Right. And you know, it goes both ways. If they're giving you the time, then they should be able to expect you being productive for it. You're not just exactly, you know, hanging yeah. out at a, at a coffee shop. Um, and it, and it, you know, again, it sends a message. So when you have a division chief who uh, is a physician and they work clinically, but 30% of their time is clinical and the remainder is other stuff, that means that their position is primarily a leadership one. They're doing those other things. If you had that same job where they were 90% clinical or something, their job is primarily clinical and presumably... This other stuff is is like a, just a little <laughs> cherry on top. 
there is more of a pathway for probably for physicians uh, in larger academic settings to pull on that thread if that is something you're interested in, which is to say uh, doing less clinical work and more something else, which often means like climbing the the uh, academic ladder. Uh, you'd be professor of varying degrees and things like that, and then either doing more research if that is your thing, um, or pure education if that's your thing. And that often will mean you know maybe you know like working with a medical school or the, the formal didactic stuff, um, and then maybe doing some clinical work as well. I think I find there's not a lot of uh, pathways for APPs to do the same thing unless you sort of create them. And that's often easier if you generally need some other training, I think. Um, you, you have a, maybe a PhD or something, like you have formal training in research or... Um, you are, you know, you are actually an educator, and that's a big part of what you do. Uh, or, you know, talking about get, climbing the kind of managerial ladder, it's hard to get past a certain point without some other training. You know, a lot of people have MBAs at that level, or kind of the equivalent of MBAs for like healthcare leadership. There's degrees specifically about that, um, but there's there's kind of a natural ceiling. If, you know, if you're just somebody who's got their clinical degree and whatever it is that we do, you become, you know, one of these kind of team leads in your department. You can maybe do some educational stuff. Uh, but beyond a certain point, you, you probably need some other in. Yeah, I don't know about how it works for PAs, for NPs. Uh, like you, you mentioned you know, physicians being involved in more academics. And certainly in an academic medical center, I think it's a lot easier for physicians, right? So I work for a department of anesthesiology, which is a division of the College of Medicine, right? I work for the medical school, um, but I'm not a physician, right? I'm not going to teach in the medical school. If I want to teach, I'm going to teach in the nursing school because uh, I'm going to teach nurse practitioner students or, you know, I know I have nurse practitioner friends who teach at the undergrad level even. Um, and that's a different thing, right? So that's, there's not a natural progression there. Uh, and I think most People I know who teach uh, at the NP school, schools, various schools, um, it's like a second job, right? It's something that they've decided, that's this is what I'm interested in doing, and maybe I'm interested in sort of testing the waters and seeing what teaching is like, um, and maybe one day I'll transition to it full-time, um, but I'm going to take on a second kind of part-time job. I'm going to teach one class, or I'm going to uh, teach some clinical students or something like that. Um, you know, some places, so I, where I teach at Georgetown, um, that I'm aware of, all of our, at least acute care faculty, um, practice full time, right? Or at least most time. Um, it's not always true. Uh, some schools, you have a lot of faculty who just teach, um, which I think is, it presents some problems, right? They're further removed from real practice um, in a, in a, field that's very much teaching you the practical aspects of that field. Um, but to, to be honest, at least for nursing, go, teaching full-time is a pay cut, um, right. usually a substantial one. Um, I mean, I know people who have cut their salary almost in half by leaving clinical practice to teach full-time um, because the, the money just isn't there. I don't know what it's like for PAs, but... 
No, I think that's common as well. Um, do you have uh, a faculty appointment of some kind at your institution? So are you a professor of something or? You mean at UK where I'm, where my, at my clinical institution? I guess either. So not at UK, I don't. Um, I'm simply a clinical clinical role. Um, at Georgetown where I'm, I have a faculty position, I do. Uh, I'm an associate adjunct, adjunct professor right now, um, hopefully becoming more than that at some point. But uh, um, we had discussed at one point at UK the possibility of getting sort of faculty appointments for any APP in the enterprise who was interested uh, to the college. And so I don't know if that's something that's still ongoing or not, but um, I, I do know there are some people who have that by virtue of that fact that they do, they have a 50-50 or 70-30 or something split. Um, but right now I will occasionally do some teaching for the college, but it's usually like, hey, can you come do a guest lecture or can you help out in a skills lab or something like that? Um, and so I don't get, I don't have a faculty appointment for that. Right. Yeah. This is, um, kind of one of those weird areas that is, it works differently in different places, but you know, a lot of teaching centers affiliated with, uh, particularly medical schools, uh, all or, or most of the attending physicians, um, they have some kind of a, a title, you know, they're mm-hmm. often an assistant professor or like a clinical assistant professor of, of whatever medicine or something. Uh, they just kind of give it out to everyone who's on the staff there. Sometimes there's a um, somewhat lower level, like a clinical instructor, people who don't aren't new to other things. But um, and then you can kind of climb that ladder. You can become a associate professor, and then a, a just a professor, a full professor. And then at some point, you might be able to get tenure of some kind. It works a little differently in in the clinical setting than people who are in pure academia, like you are a professor of of the arts or, or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, but it, there's, you know, there's overlap. And, you know, for some people, one of their goals is to become a, a full tenured professor, uh, which might m- mean some things like additional pay or something, uh, additional uh, say in, in leadership and things like that. Usually to get to these higher levels, you need to be doing a lot of other things aside from pure clinical stuff. You know, you're in leading departments and stuff, research oftentimes. Um, but certainly it's even more out of the way for, for non-physicians. Like you said, a lot of places, they're not even giving out these titles to people like APPs, um, and you may need to try to kind of create those opportunities if they interest you. And understanding, of course, that if you're not going to pursue one of these academic pathways through things like education or research or something, it probably doesn't really mean anything. You know, if you're working full-time clinically, and someone one day says, "Hey, we're you're a assistant professor now of something." Uh, they're probably not going to give you money. <laughs> you're not going to get a new parking spot or anything. It's just something you could put on your badge or something. Yeah, I do know, and I can't remember off the top of my head now. I do know I remember talking to someone one time that was at an academic medical center, and their APPs had faculty appointments to the medical school. Um, so. You know, you were an assistant professor of surgery if you worked for the Department of Surgery, or assistant professor of medicine, or whatever. Um, which, if you're in, if you're not somebody who works in academics, it may sound really weird that a PA is an assistant professor of surgery, for example. But um, I mean, I know non-surgeon physicians who have faculty appointments to the Department of Surgery 
because right they it, essentially it was, hand it out to yeah the it works physicians out or whoever way. so i guess why not to ABPs? right they, i mean it, it's you know, honorary may, at that level yeah and and it t- tends to be things like you know well maybe you're a pulmonologist but you're the co-medical director of the surgical icu and right. so you're an assistant professor in the department of medicine and in the department of surgery because you work for a surgery group right um and sometimes the reasoning is because they they teach students, like yeah. medical students, for instance, because they rotate through. And you know, if we are involved in that too, then same reasoning. Again, at the end of the day, it's it's a name which could be yeah. meaningful. You know, words mean things, especially to people outside your immediate circle. It may be relevant to put on your resume or your email signature or something. Um, but it's just words. Yeah, I mean, I think all of our physicians, I think, have faculty appointments like that. And I think it does matter, right? You go from associate to assistant to full professor, you get more money, you get more perks. Like you said, eventually you get tenure. Um, but yeah, for most APPs, I think, unless you're in a academic position where you're teaching, like, right, you have an actual appointment yourself, then those titles are just titles. Right. And again, that might be of relevance, you know, especially, I don't know, you want to write a book or something and yeah. you're proposing the idea and they're like, who are you? And you're like, well, I'm a, I'm a PA. And that's sort of all you can say. You know, there's not as many markers of the sort of stuff we do for, as for someone like a physician, I think. Um, so maybe it's relevant to be able to say, yeah, I'm a yeah, I think I don't want so I don't so. want people to hear us say knocking titles as like oh titles are just if you care about that sort of thing, uh, ego boosts or whatever. I mean, I think there's a lot of value in a title. Like you said, um, you want to do speaking, you want to do writing, you want to do all sorts of other things. Assistant professor carries a lot more weight than nurse practitioner, right? Even if right. it's the same job. So titles matter, and it's not just makes my ego feel better. Yeah, and the other caveat there is that you may not realize the things that the title or whatever matters for uh, now. It may be, you know, in two years, you want to do something where you should have been kind of accumulating these bona fides to, to build the opportunity for it now. So, it's you know, it's good to... Whatever, you know, get the things that you can when you can, uh, even if you're not sure why it'll matter. If, 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 you know, to bring it full circle, if any of these topics are things that you think you could ever care about, um, you know, do what you can to create the right opportunities in your career pathway to, you know, leave some doors open for you. Well, I think this will hopefully wrap us up for this little, little journey through academic things we do for no reason. Um, I hope to see you all at SCCM very shortly. Um, and otherwise, will you hear from us in a couple of weeks? Otherwise, we'll talk to you soon.